I'm David Woodshale, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA, and you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. We seem to be facing more problems in a global scale, with COVID-19 and climate change being just two examples. But are we acting in an appropriately global way to solve these issues? Last month, I had a telephone conversation with Norbert Chismadia, President of the Board of Directors at Palace Athene Geopolitical Foundation, during which we talked about this new world order, how maps are having more of an impact in economics, and how business education needs to respond. So Norbert, thanks very much for taking the time to, to speak to us today. I thought it would be interesting if we kicked off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and, and your career. Hello, my name is Norbert Chismadia. I'm geographer, economic geographer, and former state secretary in the Ministry for National Economy and the former executive director of the Central Bank of Hungary. I'm the president of BOR, one of the largest uh, foundation in Hungary, which is called the Palas Atene Foundation, and even to the, the broad of trust of Palas Atene Innovation and Geopolitical Foundation, and the chief editor of the quarterly magazine about Hungarian geopolitics, what is the called Hug, and I'm the author of the book Geofusion, the Power of Geographing and the Mapping of the 21st Century. The main question of the book is how we navigate across the geography to understand the 21st century complexity and connectivity and why the maps are important to the understand this all new world system. It was really interesting. Uh, end of January or, or the middle of February, I wrote articles that just to summarize the book. And the title is The 21st Thesis to the 21st Century about geopolitics and its impact to the business education. So just only to summarize of the 21 uh, most important thesis to the 21st century, we can describe that we are living of the new world order, where the new actors, new partnership, new battle fight, and the new myths are born. And this is the world, this is a new multipolar. And of course, if you want to understand or the complexity to the world system, we have to must return to the geography because of geography is a sense. We are living in the age of geoeconomy, what is the new discipline where is a fusion of social science, geography and economic becoming increasingly important. Of course, this is the age of the technology. In the 2013, we are getting of the age of fusion and age of network. So the globalization the step to the new phase of the age of the technology. And whereas economic pole shifted to the East Asia, and the two main most important passwords are the connectivity and the complexity. Where is a draw material and experience of the service of the 21st century? And after to the 500 year Atlantic period, moving back to the eastward and create of the new Eurasian supercontinent. And this era, about the geofusion era, we can call this a new renaissance age, where the global city-states, uh, the mega-regions, the highly important role is, will be the same as like a renaissance uh, era. And of course, the new way of thinking of the beginning of the emerge, the role of nature, family, harmony, harmony sustainability, and will be the more important and the more important and the same is like a technology. And from the global civilization is will turn of the 
new geo-civilization, the world seeker, inner harmony and balance, what is the most important. This is the balance of employment, growth and finance. This is the employment between the geopolitics, money and technology. Where is the ancient, it will be the new, the age of technology, the those nation and center will be the successful, were able to transfer of the ancient knowledge into the 21st century and nation creative citing ancient knowledge. So this is occasion. We should redrawing our map to the understand the special changes and trends to the 21st century because words we hope that after the coronavirus it will the long-term sustainability and the great challenge to the right solution is all everything about economy the technology sustainability the global changes the connectivity and the complexity so this is occasion that there's a new world order not just burning in next the last week or this week or after to the coronavirus uh, the crisis but it's starting more than seven years Ago. And this is the time that we are realized the day by day or daily life. So we have to new maps, the new approach, the fusion about the new economic, the new uh, solutions, and the fusional uh, geography. And of course, the sustainable technology, the modern needed because the future has begun. I mean, just to pick up on that point, you know, your background is, is very varied, but you, you started off fundamentally as a geographer. Why do you think that maps are so important in playing an increasing role in 21st century economics? Of course, the maps is like uh, language. It's a constantly changing and evolving. And the maps provide us unique pictures around the world, unlike anything else. The picture is was not only allows to imagine the distance and the relative position of the places, but which also helps to understand the context and relation. So what's more is give us the stability and the basis for knowing or or way in the world. So the maps are meaning in our hands to understand and even the shape to the world. So the 21st century, in the age of the rise of geography and where maps reveal to the hidden context in our world. So as I told you, we're living of the age of fusion and age of networks and globalization entered into the new age and age of technology and knowledge versus currency, individual, ideas, innovation and creativity. So this is, I think that the maps become one of the most important language of the 21st century and we are witnessing of the rise of geography. The maps are the tools or action and the plans which is allowed to shape to the future. So the maps are 21st century, the combined technology, the generational knowledge and the geography. So this is have to explore or work together and this driving forces Pass down and knowledge is navigated the using the maps for Milena to the order to the transform skill into action so many more good stories and discover make to the place I just want to tell for example example we are we are creating of the new maps the new fusional maps and what does happen in China the first step about the current virus and the network and physicists has realized that is a new maps is doesn't matter anything to the geographical distance but where is going of the direct flight from Beijing to Shanghai or Milano and Frankfurt and and New York so we are we are 
recognizing this is the new way of the virus, the global, the first global virus is, is even more than this is a travel pattern for people. So the spreading is going is very, very fast. Immediately the first about Southeast Asia going immediately of the Europe from Europe went to the New York and the United States. So this is what I wrote about a book about a fusion and network and, and how it looks like or, or geofusion work. It means that we are just only realizing. Okay. So you famously previously said that the 2008 financial crisis created a new world order. I think given the current climate, it's fair to say that COVID-19 has created a new sort of um, global crisis. Do you think that will have a similar effect to the 2008 financial crisis and you sort of look into the future and going forward? Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure because, you know, is every black swan or, or, or gray rhinoceros and butterfly effects, uh, it's, it's, it's great for, for the new. And for example, the World Bank is, is created of the megatrends until 2030s. There is the big continental, the tectonic shift, what is the change the world, uh, the rise of Asia and the middle power in, in Asia economy, uh, the way of travel, uh, the safety and the uh, healthcare system. So is the technology and the military houses meeting together. And there is a different spot that we are not waiting and just come immediately. But if you are thinking of the 12 years uh, uh, circles like 2008 or 1996 about Asian crisis, 1984 is about uh, African uh, crises like in uh, Ethiopia or or uh, 74. So this is like or um, the other crisis is five times for 12 years or so 60 years. It's called it's like a contracture wave or the long-term period is 500 years. What is, I call it is renaissance or the new renaissance age is getting for, for similarity. But it's always is a fact. It's like a natural disaster. It's like, um, for example, to the to the virus, or or earthquakes, or 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 Fukuoka uh, atomic uh, disaster is always creating to the to the economic crisis. But it's very important that of course is similarity because every nation is got is, is have to give to the answer. It's only one thing is who will give to the answer. So we are realizing of the global institutes like VHO or I don't know the big global institution is can't give the answer. The regional institute, for example, European Union don't give to the answer. What to give for answer? The nation government is immediately give very, very the strong. And this is uh, if you are taking of the old story, all the different countries, different aspects, different results, and the different the stories. Fascinating stuff. Norbert, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about this new world order and, and help our listeners um, make sense of the sort of geopolitical and, and geofusion issues that are taking place at the moment um, and putting that into context of business education. So thank you very much for that. I'm Ellen Buchan, Communications and Insights Assistant for Amber. Last month, I caught up with Manchu Rai. We spoke about the importance of community in business schools and the ways in which it can be created. We also spoke about digitalisation and how COVID-19 might have lasting impacts on business school in regards to digitalisation. 
here's that conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career, please? Uh, basically, I happen to be an engineer. I'm an electrical engineer, and I've worked with uh, Tata Steel, which was then the largest private steel manufacturer in India, from the house of Tata's, for about eight and a half years. And that's when the teaching bug caught me, so I went on to do my PhD in negotiation. And then after I've taught for 12 years, and I've taught subjects like strategic business negotiation, uh, leadership literature, and justice, ethics, and morality. For two years, I was the dean of the India campus of SDA Bakoni, and currently, I'm the director of the Indian Institute of Management Indore. Uh, the IIMs are the institutes of national importance in India, and we are a triple crown accredited institution. So we've talked quite a lot about leadership, but do you think the business schools are doing enough to produce ethical leaders? What do you think the impact of producing ethical leaders is for businesses? I don't think that the business schools are doing enough. For example, um, Enron, the Enron case was the one which, uh, which rang the bells for us. And then we had our own case of Satyam in 2008 in India. But if you look at these organizations who were at the helm, it was products of some very good business schools around the world who were actually running these organizations. And likewise, I've had experience with uh, some of the participants in my executive education. So, you know, I, I give them a definition of leadership saying, look, leadership is a process by which a person influences others to accomplish an objective, so on and so forth. And then I ask them to name some leaders. Now, while they name usual leaders like Gandhi, uh, Mandela, or from the world of business, the Tatas or Bill Gates, they also name the villains of the history in the same breath that they name Gandhi or a Mandela. So clearly there is something in the business schools which is lacking. And I think a couple of those things include our own conduct, our own processes. For example, there is the scandal about the admission processes in some of the business schools, some of the top business schools in the world. And thus, I don't think we are doing enough, but we certainly need to do more because ethical leadership is going to be the key for inclusive and responsible leadership in the times to come. You spoke about what leaders um, inspire your um, students, but what leaders inspire you? So Gandhi has always been an inspiration. Uh, there was a character called Krishna in uh, uh, one of the scriptures of, of Indian tradition, uh, the Mahabharat. And Krishna is the one who wrote the core of Mahabharat, which is called the Gita. So irrespective of whether one considers that character as a historical character, a mythological character, that's a character which has inspired me a lot. Amazing. Um, is, I am, I am Indore seems to have a great focus on community. Why is it important to build a sense of community in a business school, and how do you how do you go about building it? See, to me, it is extremely important, and for us at I am Indore, it's extremely important because it is one of the three mantras that drive us towards our mission statement. So we talk about being contextually relevant being world-class, and being socially conscious. So to us, it is extremely important that there be a focus on community because we want to develop empathy and sensitivity amongst the students and amongst the residents of this uh, campus. 
uh, towards people who are not so privileged. So just to give you a, a data set, a data point, of the 1.33 billion population of India, 833 million people live in rural areas. And people who live in urban areas, and mostly students who come to IIM and DORC, come from urban areas, have absolutely no clue about the kind of problems that people in the rural areas face. And therefore, I think it is, it is almost like a mandate that by virtue of being institutes of national importance, we have some sense of a community. And it does help us. For example, in this pandemic, when the entire institute is locked down, I'm running this campus with about 25% of my usual staff. And therefore, I called out on the campus residents to be a part of the volunteer community and come and help us in running the administrative aspects of the institution. And lo and behold, from gardening to, to serving food in the mess and in dining halls, from cleaning to sweeping and taking care of our dock shelter, we have a dock shelter in the campus as well. The residents of the campus have come together as a community and they're relieving the regular staff so that the staff can get some rest while we take over and do all of these things. Well, that's an amazing act of kindness from your students. What, do you have any tips um, on how to build a community such as yours? So multiple ways. One of them is that we try to build a community through certain courses. So for example, we have something called a rural engagement program under which all our students, no exceptions, it's a compulsory thing, all our students in group of six go and live in villages of India for one week. So they, are, they go across to about 106 villages and then they live in those villages, find out about the problems of the villages and then come back and talk to us and we try and suggest some solutions and we try to own up those solutions as a business school. Likewise, we have another program called the Himalayan Outbound Program wherein the students go and do a trek and stay in the Himalayan regions. Now, the problems that people in the mountains face are very different from the problems that people face internally. Thereafter, we also are a part of the Jane Goodall Root and Shoot Program, Roots and Shoots, by virtue of which the students come together and try to address issues related to the environment. So by multiple such interventions and by having a mentor-mentee system at Ayamindor, we try to build a sense of community. Wow, this program sounds absolutely amazing. So how we talked a little bit about the disruption of COVID-19, but how can business schools best support their students during this difficult global time? Multiple ways. I think the key over here is continuous communication which means we need to tell the students. For example, most of my students are now in their respective homes, uh, staying with their families. And while we have online classes, while we are trying to address the academic issues, we also try and communicate to them as to what is happening in the campus so that they, they, they feel some kind of a connection. And we also listen to their problems which go beyond the academic issues. So for example, we have made sure that we have our health line, especially the mental health line and the counsellors' numbers open. We also have online counsellors and we have ensured that that counselling activity continues. So even when students are staying at their home, they have access to all of these facilities. Likewise, there are multiple other ways. For example, I wrote to the, to the chairpersons of different banks. Most of the students who come to the Indian Institute of Management in Dodd come on a study loan. 
So I wrote to the chairpersons of the banks asking them to defer the payment schedules beyond the moratorium that the banks already give. And I'm so happy that some of them responded positively. Likewise, when it comes to the summer internship, which our students do after the first year, some of the companies are taking back those offers. So we are, essentially, we do not interfere into that because it's a student-led activity and the institute is not responsible. But it so happens that a summer internship is also a part of the academic curriculum, which means it's a requirement. It's an academic requirement. So we are trying to help students now get summer internships, failing which we are asking them to do an internship with the faculty. Likewise, for placement, the placement chairs are coming together and requesting the companies not to take back offers, but to rather defer them. So I think there are many, many ways in which we can assist students in these troubled times. You talked about being communication being one of um, these things you can to help. Um, you're quite an avid user of social media. Do you think your social media impacts the image of your school? And do you find it a good way to engage with your stakeholders? Well, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it does two things. One is it uh, creates some kind of a perception about the school as to what the school is all about. What are the core values? that the school espouses. And the dissemination about those core values actually brings in multiple opportunities. So, for example, when I wrote on my social media, when I tweeted that this is how I've written to the chairpersons of the banks, there were several ex-students of mine who approached me and said, hey, we, we got some summer opportunities and summer internship opportunities. So we would be delighted to extend it to your students and they can do so working from home. So this was one of the things. We had to postpone our convocation. And most of the students, it's a big deal over here. Uh, people, the students attend the convocation, the graduating students attend the convocation along with their families. So there were almost 3,000 people who were expected to come to the campus. Now all of that got cancelled. And these students had already booked their tickets on different airlines. So I tweeted uh, to all the airlines saying that they should not levy any cancellation charges. And much to my delight, some of my students informed me that within an hour, some of the airlines actually waived off the entire cancellation charges. So I think there is a great impact that a business school can have through social media, provided that you have it very, very clear as a social media strategy, as it, what is it that you wish to communicate through it? And how do you leverage it for something that actually encourages even the students to join in and gives you the impact that you're looking for? How can business schools best keep up with digitalization to, to ensure their offerings stay relevant? <laughs> um, you know, the, the, I, I always try to see opportunity in, in any adversity. So I think now we are being forced to look at some kind of digitalization. One of the things I think all business schools need to have is a digital strategy to begin with. I think most of the schools did not have a digital strategy, including ours. So we, we did things on an ad hoc basis. We kept on adding to our digital learning platforms so on and so forth. But we need to have a digital uh, strategy. And the interesting part about having a digital strategy is that we need to build a learning management system which is easily adaptable. And we also need to train the faculty and the students so that they adapt to these management systems, these learning management systems. But there was a recent research which came up with some extremely 
a, a funny results, completely unexpected. And that was that the percentage of faculty who were willing to adapt to online learning was higher than the percentage of students who were comfortable going online. This is strange because why would I expected it to be the other way around? You would have expected the students to be far more conducive and far more amenable moving online. But these industries have said that students were not amenable. Uh, I'm not sure as to what the reasons are, but clearly this is something that needs to be addressed. And from the faculty side, I, I think what the faculty needs to realize and what business schools uh, leaderships, uh, the leadership needs to tell to the faculty is that online teaching is a different pedagogy. You should not try and replicate a classroom, including the material, when you go online. These are two completely different pedagogies. So you will have to adapt both your material and your teaching style to ensure that you give the maximum, to have the maximum impact in an online kind of system. So I think there are multiple things that business schools will need to actually address when it comes to digitalization. You talked about kind of being forced to look into digitalization um, because of having to move online so quickly. Do you think that this will have a lasting impact on like your business school and business schools in general? Or do you think that when this hopefully um, is over, everything will go back to like, the way it was? I don't think everything will go back to the way it was. At the same time, I don't think that schools are going to turn totally digital. Uh, I am still of the view that you cannot replicate a classroom experience in any digital mode, no matter how great or how amazing your digital platform is. For the simple reason that one of the things I've realized in business school, both as a student and then uh, and now as a faculty, is that a greater part of the learning happens through discussion amongst the peer group. And this discussion in the peer group, which means on the other side of the stage or from the other side of the platform, is uh, severely hampered and is severely limited when you go through online means. So by no way am I saying that online education is going to replace the usual classroom education. But one of the things which is going to stay is that this online, going online and digitalization has created many more opportunities. So for example, there were some organizations uh, and, and predominantly in executive education space. So there were lots of organizations which hitherto did not engage with us because they, they said that it's very difficult for us to actually bear the cost of the travel of our employees going from here to there. And also when it comes to a classroom uh, executive education, we used to say that, hey, it cannot be more than 30 participants because that impacts the learning. Now, these organizations have started coming to us and saying, hmm, now that we are digital, now, now that it's online, would you be able to take in more participants in one session? And yes, it's possible. So I think certain elements of business school are going to change in the long term. Well, thank you so much for answering all my questions. It's been a great discussion. Uh, my pleasure, Ellen. Thank you to Norbert and Himanshu for those interesting discussions. And make sure to check out all the rest of our thought leadership at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to listen out for our next podcast.